Hi, this is Pastor Josh from First Baptist of Queen. Thank you for joining us on our study, our Wednesday night study, tonight as we start the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Christians in Philippi. You see, Philippi, the city itself, was decidedly Roman. Archaeologists have uncovered many artifacts with Latin inscriptions in addition to Roman monuments and baths and a forum. There was also a... Uh, a sanctuary dedicated to the god Dionysus, Liber, Libera, and Hercules. Uh, they have also found nearly 80 different depictions of the goddess Diana. We also know from Paul's letter to the Corinthians that many of the Philippian Christians uh, were notably poor. Paul had come to the city in Acts chapter 16 after having a vision of a man calling to him. When Paul arrived, he discovered that there was not a synagogue in town. His custom had been to go into a synagogue to begin preaching, but as there was not a synagogue here, he found some people gathering for prayer outside the city. Paul and his group of friends shared the gospel with the people, and some of them were saved, including Lydia, who was a wealthy merchant. Once she believed, uh, she opened her home to Paul and his friends to stay to stay with her while they were in town. And one day Paul commanded a demon to come out of a slave girl who uh, would use the demon to tell the future for a price. Her owners were fairly unhappy, so they dragged Paul and Silas, one of his friends, before the magistrates, causing them, or accusing them of stirring up trouble, uh, that particular trouble that was unbecoming of Romans. Paul and Silas were then beaten with rods and placed in stocks in the inner prison. At midnight, while Paul and Silas were singing and praying, a great earthquake shook the prison and broke open all of the prison cells. However, none of the prisoners left. So Paul was able to use that moment to share the gospel with the jailer and then with his whole family. When the morning arrived, the magistrates learned that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, and as such... They were not supposed to be tried and beaten and thrown into prison as they were. So the magistrates came, uh, apologized, and asked them to leave the city. So they visited with Lydia and the other people who had come to believe since they had been there, encouraging them one more time, and then they left. Now sometime later, uh, Paul writes this letter, Philippians, back to the believers in Philippi. He indicates four times in the first chapter, in verse 7, verse 13, verse 14, and verse 17, that he was in prison when he wrote this letter. He was imprisoned in Caesarea from about A.D. 57 to 59. We read about that in Acts 24, 22 through 27. But it is more likely that the imprisonment he speaks of here in Philippians chapter 1 uh, was when he was in prison in Rome. As he references the believers uh, in Caesar's household, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 22. So, from a Roman prison, Paul writes to these believers, many of whom he had led to Christ himself. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Now, Timothy. Timothy had been with Paul and Silas during the ministry to the Philippians. They were servants of Jesus, Paul and Timothy. Uh, this is the idea uh, being servants, the idea of humble service, but also of having been chosen for their specific assignment. 
They were willing to serve wherever the Lord wanted them to be of service. They were singularly and completely at His disposal. They, they are writing here to all the saints, uh, that is, holy and set apart and, and separate people. When someone believes in Jesus, they are set apart for heavenly purpose and destination. Uh, and so he writes to all the saints, but he also writes, he says there uh, in verse 1, to the overseers. Uh, that word overseer, uh, it's a word meaning spiritual guardian, one who has responsibility for spiritual concerns. Uh, some translations uh, translate that word as bishop. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5-9, through nine, Paul uses the words elder and overseer interchangeably. So in the church, Paul envisions these two words, offices, elder, overseer, to be the same thing. In uh, Titus chapter 1, verse 7, Paul calls the overseer a steward, which means administrator, manager. Uh, it would seem that, that Paul believes the overseer, the elder, is the leader, the manager of the church on God's behalf as divinely assigned. And though Paul generally outlines the duties of overseer, Peter gives a defined meaning to the role of a human shepherd uh, that we often designate to be that particular role of overseer or pastor within an individual church in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1-4. through Peter writes, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising, here's the word, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd, that is Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So in verse 2 there, Paul states that the elders are to shepherd by exercising oversight, which perfectly aligns with Paul's use of the word shepherd in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. So, taking both Peter and Paul together, the elder, overseer, pastor, is to lead the people in the way of the Lord through Scripture by overseeing their spiritual development so that they can grow spiritually and minister to each other. But it's very interesting that Paul uses the word in Philippians 1.1 in the plural, overseers. So it would seem that Paul and Peter using their language in the same way that we use the term for office of minister on a church staff. So this church in Philippi had more than one minister on staff, so to speak, leading them. In addition, he writes there in verse 1 of deacons. That word means servant. Uh, in ancient secular Greek society, deacons were sometimes table servers. They provided for and they served, which is a similar idea that Jesus introduced in Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came, to, uh, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As an office in the church, as described in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, and 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, uh, the deacons uh, are comprised of people uh, who are filled with the Spirit, they are humble, and they seek sel to selflessly serve without needing recognition. Paul is writing the letter here, Philippians, to all the people of the church, the leaders and servants included. He seems to simply be pointing out the roles in addition to the congregation itself, but meaning that they are all to take and apply the teaching of this letter to themselves individually. 
And then he writes in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This phrasing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, is the exact same as it is in Galatians and Ephesians. Listen to this. So let's read it again. Philippians 1 verse 2 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Galatians 1 verse 3 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ephesians chapter 1 verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Exact same. So similar though, uh, to Galatians and Ephesians, writing here in Philippians, Paul can grant neither grace nor peace. Only God can provide true uh, uh, and full grace and peace. But this phrase, uh, he uses consistently, obviously, throughout his letters. It is a prayerful blessing that he's offering for the people to whom he is writing. He's praying that the Lord will grant the readers grace and peace in their lives. The grace and peace come from God. And Paul is praying those things, grace and peace, over his readers. Look at what he says in verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul says that every memory of them is a source of gratitude. He is able to thank the Lord for each memory. But think about that for a sec. Does that also mean his arrest, his beating, his prison time? Well, knowing Paul as we do from Scripture, quite possibly yes. Uh, because for Paul, if he was following the Lord, then everything that he encounters is in service to God's greater purpose. Possibly somewhere around 10 years have passed since Paul's time in Philippi, but separation of time and distance could not prevent Paul's joyful and thankful heart at the thought of his time with them. Paul is able, while sitting in the Roman prison, to express incredible joy, not because of his circumstances, but because of the Lord's work through the Philippians. Finding and expressing joy when we are going through a difficult season is rarely easy because in truth, we tend to look for happiness instead of joy. True joy cannot be undone by any circumstances because true joy is completely based on Jesus' presence. So even sitting in a Roman prison, Paul experiences and expresses joy because he knows that Jesus has been present throughout his life and ministry and is still present with him in his present chains. Then Paul writes that the Philippian Christians had been partners with him in the gospel. This word partnership, it means fellowship, joint participation in unified purpose. He says, from the first day of their salvation, the people of Philippi were dedicated to the cause of Christ and his work through the ministry of Paul. Even once intense persecution broke out, the Philippian believers never stopped supporting and participating alongside Paul in the work of the gospel. Some will say that they support the work of the gospel, but when it gets uncomfortable, or when they have to love a difficult person, or when they have to forgive for the same offense one more time, or when they are tired, or when they don't want to give anything else financially, then at that point their support of the work of the gospel becomes, becomes merely lip service, not backed by actions. To which James says in James 1, 
What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and once and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. So statements of faith unsupported by actions of faith are meaningless. And the lives of the Philippian Christians supported their statements of faith through even persecution. Look at verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So the good work started in the Philippian believers, began with their salvation. The good work started the moment that they believed and will continue on until the day when Jesus returns. The good work continues through them directly as they share the gospel in first century Philippi and on through the coming generations as their legacy of faithfulness to the work of the gospel is passed down. The work will continue as each successive generation continues to share the gospel just as that generation of Philippian Christians did. In addition, this is a statement of faith for Paul. He is confident of the work that Jesus has begun and continues to do because he knows that Jesus is faithful and never fails. The work of the gospel is the work of Jesus through willing followers. Jesus started the church in Philippi because of his efforts through Paul and his friends. Paul didn't start the church. Jesus did. And Paul in verse 6 here is acknowledging the effectiveness of the work of the gospel as put forth by Jesus. And that work will not be done until the last day comes. So, as long as we are still on this earth, there is still work to be done. Work of the gospel. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So, Paul has no doubt in his mind, nor any reservations in his spirit about how thankful he is for the Philippian Christians. They hold a special place in his heart, and he has a special place in their hearts. They were together through significant events and remained faithful to the Lord and to Paul throughout the years. Undoubtedly, You have people who have a special place in your heart because you were together through significant events and have remained faithful. These Philippians, they were all partakers with him of grace. Now, this word for partakers there, that is the same word as for partners earlier. Fellowship, joint participation, and unified purpose. So the Philippian Christians continued in the work of the gospel and in their support of Paul, even when he was arrested, as seemingly some of the believers in Rome viewed Paul's imprisonment as problematic. But the Philippians remained faithful. Paul continued to defend and verify the truth of the gospel to everyone who would listen, even all the way up to Caesar. The Philippians never abandoned or distanced themselves from him as he was going through such a difficult assignment. And as a result of his natural response to them, came, here we go, verse 8. For God is my witness, 
how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, as Philippian Christians could not physically see it for themselves, Paul called on God to be his witness and to relate to them the truth of the next statement, that he yearns, yearns with an extremely deep emotion to be with them again. But this deep desire is not human in its origin, which greatly intensifies its meaning. Paul says that his compassion and desire to be with them again is from the affection of Jesus. The idea is that the power of the love is so great that it has to be the love of Jesus. And speaking of love, he goes on in verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and all discernment. So here, Paul prays for the spiritual growth of the Philippian believers. He prays for their love to be in abundance and to grow ever more abundant. And abundance is to have an amount that far exceeds anything you thought possible to the highest of extreme amounts. The idea is to be super abundant or, or have more than enough and to grow even more than enough on into forever. So Paul is praying for an ever-increasing amount of love to be poured out through the Philippian Christians. And this love is to be filled with knowledge and all discernment. The knowledge of the Lord in their lives only serves to heighten the love that abounds through the, uh, from the Spirit through them. And the discernment there, that word, literally means the ability and capacity to perceive and understand. The word is connected to the knowledge, so that the knowledge is not merely to exist for the sake of information. The knowledge of the Lord is meant to be perceived and understood so as to be properly interpreted and applied. And then it would propel His love through us in an even greater capacity. The more we know and understand His love for us and in us, the more, we, the more love that we will be able to distribute in abundance to those around us through the grace of the gospel. Paul prays this for the Philippians in these next couple of verses, 10 and 11, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God, abounding love from verse 9, filled with knowledge and uh, understanding, will help the Christian to determine what decisions are ex uh, excellently valuable for the kingdom of God. When the love of Jesus directs our decisions, we find eternally valuable excellence to be a daily experience. Then, walking in the ways that are excellent will enable character development to the point of purity and blamelessness. The idea is purity and blamelessness before Jesus. Obviously, Paul found himself in a prison of man's making, but man's determination and judgment cannot compare with the determination and judgment of the Lord. We should desire and strive towards purity and blamelessness before God always and at all times. People determine purity and blame based solely on their perspectives and feelings and assumptions. God's determination, on the other hand, is based on the, perpetu on the penetrating truth of the gospel from which nothing can hide. That kind of life will then be filled with the fruit of righteousness, as Paul says there. This fruit of righteousness is the direct result of, of a life lived 
for the Lord. That fruit comes both in the form of people being saved and in the form of spiritual growth. And it is all the handiwork of Jesus in the lives of any believer who is willing to follow after his guidance and direction. So God desires us to pray as Paul did for the Philippian believers, but also to have the care that the Philippian believers had for Paul. And now next week we're going to continue our look at the book of Philippians, beginning in verse 12 here of Philippians chapter 1. So I hope you'll join us then, and thank you for joining us tonight as we have checked out Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, and I will catch you next time.